0: this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde.
0: It's Thursday, February 3rd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: Robert Califf, once a shoe in to be the next FDA commissioner, is suddenly in serious jeopardy. STAT Washington correspondent Nicholas Florco joins us to explain what's going on in the Senate.
0: Next, we examine one of the coolest drug discovery stories in medicine with Merck's head of research, Dean Lee, who joins us to talk about the company's efforts to develop an oral cholesterol pill targeting PCSK9.
2: And we'll start with the biggest news from the week in biopharma, but first, a word from our sponsor.
1: Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. Thanks for listening. As the company that pioneered the biotech industry, Genentech is known for asking and answering big scientific questions. I'm joined by the company's chief diversity officer, Quita Highsmith, to hear why asking tough questions about health inequity can be a powerful driver of change.
3: Thanks, Angus. As marginalized communities continue to be hit hardest by the pandemic, the need to tackle systemic inequity has never been more urgent. We need to stop tiptoeing around the issues of race and health disparities and shine a spotlight on the uncomfortable truths. Why are clinical trials 85% white? Why should your health be defined by your zip code? We at Genentech are investing deeply and in partnering across the healthcare ecosystem to help dismantle the status quo. Visit gene.com slash ask bigger questions to learn more. That's G-E-N E dot com slash ask bigger questions
1: so meg we had some news this week and um kind of kind of crazy stuff going on uh with COVID vaccines and small children can you explain to us what's going on
0: yeah this was a huge about face in terms of what parents of kids under five were expecting for a timeline because remember back in december Pfizer said that the dose it was using for kids ages two to four didn't generate enough of an immune immune response to compare with what they saw in you know 16 to 25 year olds essentially the the comparator group they were using they said that very low dose did work in even younger kids babies six months to two years old but because it didn't work in that middle group they were going to add a third dose across the board and that pushed back their expected results until March or April so all of us parents were just kind of resigning ourselves to to wait for several more months. Then suddenly this week, the news came out that the FDA asked Pfizer to submit its application with the two dose data so that the review process could begin now as Pfizer generates the data on three doses. And this just seemed like a tremendous surprise because we were told that dose didn't work for at least two to four-year-olds. But it has since emerged um, from the Surgeon General, actually, at the White House COVID briefing on Wednesday, and also from Dr. Fauci there, that... Through the Omicron surge, there were enough cases and even hospitalizations in these young kids that the picture has really changed. And they implied there are potentially clinical efficacy data now in this trial that will show that the vaccine does prevent cases or even prevent severe disease, which is really hard to show in a trial that's only a few thousand kids. So... We're not going to get to see the data for another week and a half or so. The FDA has scheduled a meeting of its outside advisors for February 15th, so we'll see the data two business days before that. That will be a huge morning because right now we're in this limbo of like, are there data to support this? Why would they clear a vaccine just so you can start taking two doses in the hopes that a third works? So there's so much speculation happening right now, but until we see the data, we just won't know. So we talked about doing a big segment on this this week, but I think we agreed until we see the data, there's just, we, it's hard to talk about. So we'll revisit this in a week and a half or so. Well,
2: and it's fascinating just zooming out from the kids aspect of this is that we're still kind of feeling around in the dark for what people call correlates of protection, which is to say the amount of immunological response to a vaccine that predicts it stopping you from getting the infection in question, in this case, COVID-19. So we're dealing with the situation, and as you said, Meg, we really can't say that much until we see the data, but at least based on the statements from those who have, is that it didn't get the kind of immunological response that you want to see, but apparently it had this clinical effect of preventing cases of COVID-19 that you do want to see. So it's possible that once we actually have this information, it will just kind of shift our constantly evolving understanding of just what kind of immunological response you need to be protected from this virus. Despite there being an ongoing pandemic, it took about 10 months for President Biden to nominate a full-time FDA commissioner. But his eventual choice, former FDA chief Robert Califf, had been through the confirmation process before, of course, so it seemed to guarantee a smooth path back to the job.
0: That has not been the case. As of this week, nearly a dozen Democratic senators are apparently unwilling to publicly support Biden's nominee, which suggests Caliph could be in serious jeopardy.
1: Stats, Nicholas Florco and Rachel Kors had a story this week exploring the Caliph predicament. Nick joins us now to talk about it. Nick, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I can't believe I'm back on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. So, I mean, my, I feel like my first question is basically like, what
2: happened just last month caliph seemed to sail through a key senate committee vote and his confirmation looked all but guaranteed and i think a lot of us had sort of mentally moved on from this question so what happened in the interim
4: well one of the biggest things that happened was that anti-abortion groups came out in strong opposition to caliph making it much much harder to get republican support for the nomination so the day after caliph's hearing the susan b anthony list which is one of the most powerful anti-abortion groups in washington sent a letter to every member of the Senate urging them to vote against Caliph and letting them know that they would score against his vote, meaning that if you had an A-plus on abortion issues, uh, you could lose that A-plus if you voted for Caliph in their scorecard. Uh, On the Democratic side, frankly, I'm left wondering not what happened, but what didn't happen. I mean, as we lay out in our story, there's so many folks that are still undecided on Caliph. And it's led people to un- to question sort of what the White House has been doing since the confirmation hearing. You know, have they been doing enough to shore up support and make members comfortable with voting for Caliph? And that's still an open question.
0: And as for the Republican side with the um, anti-abortion groups, what is it about Califf's record they oppose? Is it his support of you know pharmaceutical drugs used for abortion or w- what is the issue?
4: Well, it's honest he's sort of a victim of of timing to be totally honest because the the FDA came out recently during this confirmation process and said that they were going to permanently um change their policy on whether uh medically assisted abortions the the abortion pill can be provided by mail. And when that came out, that was a a really controversial decision for the Republican side and You know, they've basically used that to say, look, Dr. Califf has supported similar loosenings of restrictions in the past, and therefore we can't trust his position on these issues.
1: Nick, you spoke to one uh, FDA expert who called Califf's nomination the most complicated in agency history. Why is that? So two reasons. One, the Senate is evenly split 50-50.
4: That is rare, and it makes it hard to get any nominee through the confirmation process because, if you have one Democrat who votes no, you need one Republican to vote yes. Uh, and so they always knew that this was going to be a tighter vote than it would have been, for example, probably the last time Califf was in, uh, up for nomination. The second is that the fighter on the FDA commissioner, it seems, is just getting more contentious. I mean, if you look at past votes for FDA commissioners, they're almost always confirmed with massive majorities. I mean, Rob Califf was confirmed in 2016, 89 to 4. Um, but with all the anger around the drug industry and abortion issues, I mean, just this overall polarization on health issues more generally, it's become harder and harder to get an FDA nominee confirmed.
2: So who is the White House relying on internally to get Califf through the Senate? So there's a small team of folks in
4: the health department leading the nomination process through. But the White House did not bring an external team in sort of known as they're called Sherpas. So it's a a concept that's probably a weird one to people not in Washington. But often there's an outside person brought in with either connections to the FDA or the Senate who helps informally with a nomination. Rob Califf does not have that sort of guide. Uh, and the thing that has actually surprised me the most is that they're basically relying on one Republican, uh, Senator Richard Burr, to win over Republican votes. So basically, the fate of Rob Califf's nomination is the, in the hands of one Republican senator and one who, quite frankly, has been a, an outspoken critic of the FDA in the past and kind of a wild card. I mean, it's a really weird strategy here. And honestly, it's it ties back into this question of sort of what the White House is doing strategy wise. I mean... They really made this whole process hard on themselves. I mean, the White House had known that this was going to be a hard confirmation vote because there was multiple Democrats who opposed Rob Califf last time and are still in the Senate. And so in a tight Senate uh, with a hard nominee to get through, it's, it's just hard to understand why you wouldn't have an outside Sherpa, why you wouldn't have a larger Republican team, why you wouldn't lay this groundwork for a nomination that everyone else could presume was going to be kind of tough.
0: So... How do you make sense of it? I mean, we noted that the Biden administration took its time when it came to choosing a nominee. So with that in mind, and then the lack of a Sherpa, I mean, what does this tell us about the whole process that the White House is taking in terms of its approach to the FDA?
4: It's hard not to take away from this process that the FDA hasn't been a priority. I mean, we, we know that the, the White House has stood up this coronavirus response team within within the actual White House, and uh, it just seems like they don't see the FDA as part of that. I mean, some of Biden's first picks before he was even inaugurated as president were his COVID response team. I mean, he named Rochelle Walensky the head of the CDC in, in December of 2020, a month before he was even inaugurated, but we never saw the same level of urgency for the FDA, despite the FDA's clear role in the COVID pandemic.
1: So, longtime FDA official Janet Woodcock has been leading the agency on an acting basis for a full year now. Um, you know, we had her on the podcast last week, and Meg asked her, like, you know, what what does your future look like? Uh, you know, assuming that Calif gets the the you know becomes the 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 head of the FDA, she gave us kind of a very coy response. Uh, what do you think this situation means for her? So
4: my favorite part of this entire saga is that as long as Caleb's confirmation is pending in the Senate, Woodcock can stay in the acting role. Uh, obviously, that's different than the last time we talked. We, you know, previously when I was on the podcast, we talked about how there was this clock that Janet Woodcock can only stay in the acting role for a certain amount of time. But once somebody is nominated, that clock goes away. So she basically can stay in this role as acting commissioner for as long as she wants, so long as Rob Califf is left hanging out there as the nominee for the FDA. So she's she's certainly not going anywhere for the uh, for the next few months, I would say.
1: You know, after reading your story this week and then rethinking uh, what what Jenna Woodcock told us last week, my, I, I, as my thought was, you know, maybe she thinks she's just going to be the so-called like permanent acting FDA commissioner.
4: Jenna Woodcock has been the acting commissioner for the FDA for almost two full years, which is like almost the amount of time that an FDA commissioner stays in the job anyway. So I mean, basically, she would be I mean, it's she is basically the the FDA commissioner at this moment.
0: Nick, how important is it? Um, as we've heard a lot of people say we're in a pandemic. And so having a Senate confirmed FDA commissioner is an important thing. How important actually is is it? Especially when you have somebody in the acting role like Janet Woodcock, who has been at the head of the drug regulation center at FDA for so long, it's not like you've got this random person in there who's unfamiliar. Does it make a difference that she hasn't been nominated and confirmed into that role?
4: I I debate this with sources constantly. uh, And everyone has a different opinion on it. I mean, I have asked people time and time again, you know, lay out one thing for me, that, you know, hasn't happened at the FDA that uh, was a misstep and would have happened if Rob Califf was there as a Senate confirmed c- commissioner or Janet Woodcock was a Senate confirmed commissioner and not an acting commissioner. And, uh, you know, I haven't particularly been convinced by the answers. You know, I I mean, I come down on the side that it is not the biggest deal for the pandemic response. I think the bigger deal is not the fact that there's not a commissioner, but that the White House has not treated the FDA, it seems like, part of the intro of COVID response. Like that is the bigger question for me is whether the FDA is being included in the pandemic strategy the way they should, regardless of if that's Janet Woodcock as an acting commissioner or as a permanent commissioner. And I think that's an open question. But I think the actual title that Janet Woodcock holds is not the, the big concern here, at least for me.
0: Is it possible the White House sees the FDA as a necessary separate entity that does the regulation of the vaccines and medicine. So it didn't feel it was appropriate to bring it in, especially when we saw what happened with Stephen Hahn in the last administration and things like hydroxychloroquine and um, uh, convalescent plasma.
4: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, that that's always the the delicate balance is, you know, making sure that the FDA is part of the team, but also is known as sort of the impartial regulator. I think there's a middle ground, right? You You can have the FDA be independent, but still make it seem like The FDA is also part of the COVID response. Uh, You know, when I interviewed Dr. Woodcock, uh, gosh, it was it was quite a few months ago, but I had asked her directly, have you spoken to the president? And she said no. Uh, And during a pandemic, that was surprising.
2: Well, Nick, thanks as always for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: a drug can often be like solving a really challenging puzzle. For instance, scientists knew for decades that a mutant form of the cell signaling protein called KRAS caused cancer, but designing a drug capable of blocking KRAS was long thought to be nearly impossible.
2: It's because the KRAS protein is spherical and nearly featureless. Its structure was compared to a tennis ball, and that left potential drugs with few, if any, effective points at which to attach to it.
1: But then Amgen scientists took a crack at the KRAS cancer puzzle. They exploited some new advances in medicinal chemistry, structural biology. And, and Amgen was able to exploit a, a structural weakness um, that formed like a shallow pocket in the mutated KRAS protein. You can kind of think of it like a dimple on a golf ball. Amgen designed a drug that bind to that dimple and locked onto the protein. And then that drug, which was the first of its kind, and it's now called Lumicris, was approved last May to treat patients with KRAS mutated lung cancer.
0: Today, we want to talk about how scientists at Merck are staring down a different kind of drug development puzzle. This one also involves another well-known mutated protein called PCSK9, which is associated with the production of harmful levels of cholesterol in the blood.
2: So unlike KRAS, the PCSK9 protein is actually relatively easy to target a drug against. The first cholesterol-lowering monoclonal antibodies that work by blocking PCSK9, there are two of them, were approved back in 2015. And then last December, the FDA approved a third treatment that works by interfering with the RNA that sort of pre
1: PCSK9. But all these medicines are administered by regular injections. The puzzle that Merck scientists are trying to solve is how to design a more convenient pill that can lower cholesterol by also blocking PCSK9. So joining us to talk about that work is Dr. Dean Lee. He is a cardiologist by training and he's also Merck's head of research and development. Uh, Dean, welcome to
3: the read out loud. Thank you guys so much for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to speak about a program that's so exciting to me and as a cardiologist, extremely dear to my heart.
0: Dear to your heart as a cardiologist, no pun intended. (laughs) Uh, So the PCSK9 story is one of the most fascinating in terms of drug discovery. Um, It involves a an aerobics instructor in Texas who was 40 something years old, who had this kind of genetic gift. Can you tell us about why she was so important and what this genetic gift was, how it contributed to this discovery?
3: Right. Uh, the 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 story of PCSK9 is really an emphasis of the power of human genetics. I actually come from the University of Utah, where where, where there's a big emphasis of human genetics. But But this this discovery was related to actually two continents, if I remember correctly. The interesting thing about the genetics here is that there are mutations in PCSK9 that leads to increased LDL, which is not what you want, and and, an increased level of, of, of potentially getting heart disease. But there was also a study done largely at UT Southwestern where they start looking at uh, individuals who, who where they found out that there was mutations in the same PCSK9. And what it did is it, it, uh, it reduced the activity of PCSK9, so it's called loss of function mutations, and that those individuals had a really low LDL and was protected from getting atherosclerotic disease. So it's a perfect example of what we would call loss of function and gain of function mutation that really highlighted the importance of PCSK9, but also provided clear evidence that if you could block PCSK9, you might have a drug. So the PCSK9
2: story is fascinating, I think, to zoom in on, because as you mentioned, It has this backstory in the sort of like marvels of human genetics and the gain of function, loss of function. But then kind of zooming into the present, as we mentioned, it has been a drug target for other means of targeting that require injections. And so what you all are embarking on now, it builds on that genetics research. But now you enter into the worlds of chemistry, basically, to try to find a medicine that could do that job through a pill. So can you tell us a little bit about like, you know, how did you first decide to try to tackle an oral PCSK9 medicine and what does that work
3: entail? Right. So once it became clear that PCSK9 from the human genetics, from the gain of function and loss of function should be an important target, there are a number of groups that sort of advanced to try to find a drug. The simplest way to sort of describe the difference between the antibody approach and the small molecule approach is if People can't see me, but I'm not that big and my hands aren't that big. But compare LeBron James' hands to mine, a monoclonal antibody can disrupt large uh, protein-protein interactions in a way that a small molecule in general. So think about it as LeBron James' hands can grab something and Dean Lee's hand can't grab something. However, as everyone talks about, injections, you go to the hospital, you have to do all of that. You know, what people want is you detect your risk for atherosclerosis by getting your blood drawn and and measuring your cholesterol levels, especially your LDL cholesterol levels. And really what people wanna do is to be able to do that, talk to their doctor and, you know, whether you're in one continent and you get it from Alibaba or another continent and you get it from Amazon, that's what they want and they want to have a pill. It's a way to democratize the ability to uh, intervene in the PCSK9 pathway and really affect the epidemic of high cholesterol and atherosclerosis. So that gives you a general setting of the antibodies were very important, but there's always been a holy grail of making a small molecule. And what we recently published is our belief that we have been able to tackle that, and clinical data suggesting that this is truly a possibility for it. And the type of uh, the type of medicines that we're making is a small molecule that's a little bit larger than normal and more complex than normal, but still you can take it orally and it can have a profound effect on your LDL or your cholesterol level. So. So Dean, if I
1: understand this correctly, I mean, you're, you're working with, I guess, what you call cyclic peptides. And maybe you can explain what that is, but that those peptides are interfering or they're, they're working in that interface between the PCSK9 protein and the LDL receptor.
3: Peptides are a series of amino acids. And we essentially made a, a molecule that, that is peptides. And peptides, when people think about it, are usually linear. But in this case, we made it circular and it's a complex molecule, but it's one that, that has enough, what I would say, area of, of disruption between the LDL receptor and the PCSK9 that we can achieve the same effect that a large antibody and to be able to be taken orally.
0: This kind of drug development is such a puzzle. We understand that early molecules that Merck worked on had trouble crossing cell membranes and they were being eaten up by the digestive system. So, to solve this problem, Merck turned to so-called permeation enhancers. Is that right? Can you tell us what those are?
3: Yeah, so so this molecule, this small molecule is 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 in that thousand sort of range. And generally, as you get a larger and larger small molecule, you have a problem as to how well it digests. Um, And so one of the issues that we had was, how do we make it such that more of the the molecule that you had in your digestive system went into your bloodstream? So there are permeation enhancers that are given that's actually used frequently in in other situations. And just by doing that simple trick, we were able to get substantial amount of our PCSK9 macrocyclic inhibitor into the bloodstream to be able to drive the LDL cholesterol in individuals with high LDL cholesterol markedly down. So with the caveat that the work you're describing is in
2: the relative early stages when it comes to the process of drug development, I do have kind of like the dreaded business question. I'm curious, you know, what you think, as we mentioned, this target is so well established in PCSK9. And we've seen very strong uh, clinical trial data from the monoclonal antibodies we mentioned, and also uh, the twice a year RNA treatment. But I think, you know, in in the sort of like business sense, this approach is perceived as maybe the most positive way is a work in progress commercially, maybe a little bit of a disappointment in the early days. Obviously, in oral medicine has different properties than, than the other drugs out there. But when you look at the space, obviously, you're choosing to develop this medicine because you believe that it could work really well and thus provide something for patients that isn't out there now. But when you think about it in terms of the demand that we've seen for these other medicines, I don't know, where do you see it in, in the in the future in which everything goes right? Where do you see it slotting into cardiology as it's practiced?
3: I would sort of elevate it and not think about it in relationship to PCSK9 or any pathway. Essentially, what we're trying to produce is the most potent LDL cholesterol-lowering pill ever. And it happens to affect PCSK9, but that is the number one thing that we want to do. In relationship to the number of people who have high LDL cholesterol, who are at high risk, This remains a huge unmet need. The other point that I would also just make sure that the audience understands, it's one thing for me to say that I've made a really cool, small molecule that's complex and circular and macrocyclic and throughout all those words. But the other sort of thing that I think is really important is it's not just that you can invent and discover such a molecule. Our aspirations is to drive the production of this so that this can be manufactured at the cost point that other small molecules are are developed. So we're talking about an ease of use, an ease of access and essentially the democratization of the most potent LDL lowering cholesterol pathway that is known.
1: So Dean, Merck has started uh, early clinical trials of this pill. Can you tell us a little bit about the data that you've seen so
3: far? Yeah. So the data that we've seen so far is, is in phase one. And it's actually very interesting because in the cholesterol field, um, just tracking the LDL cholesterol level coming down is a wonderful biomarker. When someone talks about a biomarker, can I draw something from your blood and can I see how effective my drug is? And does that biomarker give me a realistic point of view that when I do longer clinical trials, that it will have a meaningful effect on patients in terms of cardiovascular risk. So for LDL cholesterol as a biomarker, it is one of the best biomarkers there is in all medicine. So our ability in our phase one To drive the LDL cholesterol levels to the levels that we've seen is is a good prognostic indicator of what we hope to see in phase two and phase three. And essentially the phase two trial is to look in, in a broader sort of population with certain doses that we've learned from phase one as to whether we can replicate or even see better Uh, efficacy than what we even saw in phase one. And clearly, like any other drug, we also have to be very uh, cognizant that as we expand it, we also have to look to see if there's any adverse effects that may, may pop up.
0: Well, going back to the sort of origin story about all of this, thinking about the safety uh, of this approach, one of the reasons finding these people with very low PCSK9 was so important was to see if there were any adverse effects of of having low levels of this protein. Um, And it seemed like there wasn't. Of course, there are other things at play when you are developing a new medicine. Um, But what could be the safety profile of a drug like this? Any early concerns or, or known concerns based on previous development efforts or does it look like it should be pretty good?
3: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. PCSK9 is a a molecule that when you interfere with it, it's outside the cell. Whenever something is outside the cell, your risk of doing something to a cell is markedly reduced. And so that's an advantage that this drug has, similar to what other monoclonal antibodies have as well. The genetics suggest that if you remove PCSK9 there isn't some obvious adverse effect that's associated with driving that disruption down and so you know when you look at for example the PCSK9 antibodies there are there are adverse effects that might be related to the injections but there's not really a severe adverse effect based on the mechanism. And we believe that would be true for anyone developing a sort of PCSK9 antibody or small molecule, that there would not be some you know, uh, unknown adverse effect that would immediately pop up. So I would also emphasize that the ability to inhibit PCSK9 LDL receptor interactions with a macrocyclic peptide, for lowering cholesterol has implications greater than lowering cholesterol. It potentially suggests a strategy to block extracellular targets where generally monoclonal antibodies have dominated over small molecules.
2: So finally, as you mentioned, the uh, data that we've seen in public to date from Merck's oral PCSK9 medicine is from phase one. So, can you give us kind of briefly what's the roadmap ahead for the development of this drug, and you know roughly? how many years do you imagine it'll take before you would be um, prepared to, to request FDA approval and potentially launch it?
3: In terms of what you have to show, in terms of a registrational worthy package to the FDA, there's sort of two things that one has to think about. One has to show in a larger clinical trial that you lower LDL cholesterol. And in the setting of that, in general, that has led to registration. You will also eventually need to show not only does it lower LDL cholesterol, that you have a positive effect in reducing cardiovascular mortality and the such. And so that will take a longer period of time. So we'll have to see where we end up in phase two in the next one, two years before I can give you a clear answer in relationship to that. But I think that the phase two trial will give us a clear sense of how fast we can move. But I, you know, using the the bar of other um, other antibodies that have gone before, uh, other therapies that are antibodies that went before us, um, there is a pretty linear line of getting this approved based on its ability to lower LDL cholesterol, and then subsequent studies that have to look at outcomes.
0: This is bringing you back to the days of the acronyms of CVOT cardiovascular outcome trials. <laughs> Maybe in a few years, we'll be talking about that again. Dean, thanks so much for being with us. This was so interesting.
3: Thank you so much.
1: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Before we go, we wanted to make a happy announcement. Our senior producer, Hyacinth Ebonato has just welcomed a new member of the Read Out Loud family. Baby Erina, welcome to the world, and we can't wait to have you on the podcast. Congratulations, Hyacinth. We miss you, and we can't wait to have you back. In the meantime, thank you to Teresa Gaffney for
2: producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are the aforementioned Hyacinth Empanato and Alyssa Ambrose.
1: Our executive producer is Rick Burke.
2: And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
0: Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you think is happening with the White House and the FDA. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
1: And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.